I first met Gloria Umana when she delivered a powerful spoken word piece during an event in Atlanta, Georgia. I was there to perform with recording artist Ellie Holcomb, and we were deeply moved. Gloria is a gifted communicator, the founder and director of the Ex Nihilo Collective, and now creator of The Hope Booth, which is a life-affirming interactive experience involving remodeled telephone booths. And she'll be telling us all about it in today's episode. So um, I just took a peek at your Instagram and saw that just a couple weeks ago, you came off of a 30-day tour, Hope Booth tour. So let's start there. Tell me about that. I, I understand what Hope Booth is, but I want you to share that. But I also want to understand what the tour was. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. So... For those of you guys who have absolutely no clue what Hope Booth is, it is a three-minute interactive immersive experience where we've used art and technology intertwined together to create um, just an avenue for people to receive hope. And we do it in the form of remodeled phone booths. And so, so cool. uh, this is, it's kind of, I would say it's almost like a catalyst for a larger movement. And so our hope and goal is to pioneer a movement where no one goes unseen. And so what that looks like and how to use our creativity to, to stir people's hearts to know that they're seen, but also to want to join us in this movement of doing the hard work of seeing others as well. And so that's essentially what the Hope Booth is. We one day plan to have them installed permanently on our street corners and in our prisons and our hospitals and universities, wherever people are, we think that's where the Hope Booth needs to be. Yes. And so um, it's really cool because we didn't plan to go on a tour that wasn't something that was like in our trajectory when we were thinking about like, okay, what does this look like? Um, but we went to London to debut the Hope Booth in October, which was a wild story in and of itself. And while we were in London, we had so much feedback in America from people in different states saying, hey, we want you guys to bring the Hope Booth to our city. Like, how do we get one installed here in our workplace or here in our university? And my mind was like, buffooned because I was like, wait a second, <laughs> we only have one prototype. Like this is our prototype. It's not even like our final completed version. And so I'm like, well, we, we can't really install them anywhere yet until we raise enough money to complete the final version, all of the technological side of things and the artistic side of things. And then from there, we can have people sponsor booths and bring them to their cities. But I was like, man, it's going to be really hard for me to tuck this booth away that I've seen transform other people's lives and just put it in a case because we don't have enough money to mm -hmm. get them permanently installed in places yet. And so as people were asking, our team just started praying and strategizes and thinking, and we we're like, you know what, let's start a $40,000 campaign and figure out how to get this thing on the road. So we start this $40,000 campaign. <laughs> and with most crowdfunding campaigns, if you don't reach at least like 70% of your goal in the first 24 hours, uh, you should just end the campaign right then and there. <laughs> so um, and so that was us. We, 24 hours in, we were at 2%. Okay. <laughs> and I said, yikes, this is a mess. Like, I don't know what we're going to do or how we're going to do it, but I know that people need hope. And so I had a lot of hope myself that this was going to happen because it's something that's bigger than me. And I know that anything that's bigger than you is a story that people are willing to get behind. And so our team had open hands and we still had a lot of hope to believe. And sure enough, 12 days in a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma gave us $50,000, which was just wild. We didn't plan for it. There was no conversations, no chats, no emails, no nothing. 
we just found out on a live stream that the church was giving us $50,000 and people were messaging me left and right. They were like, I think, I think the hope Booth just got 50,000. And I'm like, this is just stupid. Like, you know, when some things are yes. so amazing that it's just stupid, like that's right. what that felt like. Right. I don't think I've ever experienced true tears of joy like mm. that before, because what I was thinking about was not the fact that, yay, we have this money. I'm thinking about the fact that we're about to go to 19 different cities and people are about to encounter hope. And I couldn't have done this without this person's giving. And so it was just unbelievable and wild. And the tour was just, and when I say mind blowing, mind blowing, it was about 33 days, 19 cities, 15 or 16 states where we went around the entire U.S. to some of the highly asked places for us to visit. And so we got to go to a lot of universities, a lot of street, random street corners. And we had so many people just in tears after the three minute experience, because that is exactly what they needed in that exact moment. And I share this really often. I think it's really unique because some people Mm -hmm. just need hope for the day. And then some people need hope to choose to live another day. And so to see the people choose to live another day because of a three minute experience shows me that I need to do whatever I can in my own willpower to continue doing the work of getting these booths out on the streets, regardless how hard it is or how much money it's going to cost. I've seen how it has transformed lives and open doors for conversations that people haven't had, especially after 2020 and the difficulty of that disconnection that we've all experienced in some capacity. Um, Just people are in a hard spot. People need to be seen. Like for us to see 502 people and everyone is living such a different life and all have such a similar response to the same thing, but it's hitting them in a different way. That's a, Mm. that's a really unique thing. And so it just has my mind thinking and wondering like, man, like how do we inspire people to do the hard work of seeing others? Because there one day will be a day where hope booth won't exist. We will have to be walking hope booths in our Mm. cities and our communities, and we will have to carry the mandate of seeing other people. And so it's been amazing and a wild journey, but it has impacted me more than I could have ever imagined. Dang. I first want to say that I just interviewed two women this morning, one in Romania and one, I believe in California. And we were talking about presence and community um, for something that I'm working on. And both of them separately said, well, the first one said, to feel heard is to feel loved. And the second one, in the second interview, she said, what matters to me is being seen. When I'm seen, I feel special. I feel loved. And that has been in the forefront of my mind in some work that I've been creating. And so when I heard them say that, I was like, yes, that, that is it. That is what people need. And then for you on the same day to emphasize that, that people need to be seen. And the amazing thing, and I want to have you elaborate on what that experience is for them, what exactly they see. Um, But really, I think what we find out is that we don't have to say all the right things. We don't have to say say it beautifully, but to see a person, they, they know the difference between being seen and unseen. And you can say the right things, but not really be seeing them. And then they feel missed. And so just as, it, as you're saying, we get to be, ultimately we are the hope booths walking around. I hope everybody listening 
hears and understands that you have the power to give that to someone in the smallest interactions in the grocery store, at the schools, at your place of business. So first of all, one question I had is when you went to do the tour, did was that still one prototype being carried around then? Or do you have more? Yes, yes. We only have just one. And which is funny okay. because when we were in London, uh, we had just picked up the prototype from New York. They finally finished it and it disassembles into three pieces. So we were carrying three boxes disassembled together or we were carrying the whole booth assembled together like what? over our our head this is we a telephone have, booth how can yes. you carry this we had no other option <laughs> do what we gotta do and oh, we move along and so we see photos of us and it looks like we're carrying like a body and it's it's wrapped <laughs> it's wrapped and people are just looking like what in the world is this thing and so it's amazing because now we have a case that's been built for it oh. um, and so humble beginnings you've got to start somewhere in this yeah. life yeah and do this is just another logistical thing I'm thinking about. Does this plug in? Do you just like have an ex massive extension cord when you're out on some random street corner? Yeah. So we created the prototype so that we would avoid having to have any electrical uh, dependencies okay. per se. And so we knew that with the prototype, we <laughs> wanted to be able to easily be able to take it around. And that's the kind that's kind of the the thought process behind it being easily disassembled is that we don't have to worry about, oh, we have to plant this thing here. The prototype's not meant to be planted or installed. It's meant to go from place to place, but our our completed version is meant to be installed. So that will have electrical that goes through it and underground and plugged up where no one can see it. <laughs> now you are a very gifted speaker. Um, I don't know what you call, if you call it poet, uh, call yourself a poet or a spoken word artist or both. Um, I have gotten to hear you both with um, Ellie Holcomb at one, of, at one of her shows a few years ago. And I think that's when we first met. And then I also saw you live at Masterpiece Art Camp for high school students. And you are magnetic and charismatic and exquisitely gifted with words and language. In your recent Instagram post, you said, I saw a problem and innovators find solutions for the problems. Mm. You are not a techie. Yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you are a person with a particular gift, gifting, and yet you saw a problem and, in, and you envisioned, imagined a solution that would necessitate creating a team bringing in people with other skills. And I think that's worth celebrating because so, it's so easy to stop short because we can only envision what we ourselves feel capable to carry out. Yeah. And so can you share a little bit about that process for you of having this inkling of an idea? How did you even think of the photo? I mean, the uh, phone booth, first of all, and then- yeah. Yeah, I think, um, so I'll start by saying the thought process came in 2020. I think when a lot of thoughts came to people's <laughs> minds, um, I think the ideas that lasted are the ones that had little to do with us and more to do with serving others. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was around July, um, I was leading this spoken word collective and we would travel 
often to help other organizations and churches and nonprofits tell really beautiful stories in the form of poetry and spoken word. And all of our events got canceled naturally because it's it's a pandorama. We can't go out there. (laughs) And uh, I remember thinking to myself, man, does, is everything that we're doing just going to dissolve and be done Mm -hmm. and end because there's a pandemic. And I started thinking to myself, I don't think a pandemic is strong enough to annihilate creativity. Our world mm-hmm. has always needed it. it is it, I would say creativity is almost a foundation for how our earth was created. And so I, mm-hmm. I, I refused to believe that the pandemic would be the end of our creativity. And I just started thinking, and as someone that drives all of her thought processes and, and steps and strategies through prayer, I started praying mm-hmm. and asking God, well, what does like moving forward look like? And I felt like I so clearly heard an answer. And the answer was pivot from the stage to the streets. What Mm -hmm. would it look like if you used your creativity to transform people where they are, instead of you feeling like people need to come to where you are? That's part of seeing people, meeting them exactly where they are. And so I started thinking and thinking and researching. And then I stumbled upon the statistic. And the statistic was, the average person living on the streets goes three to six months without being looked in the eye. And mm. I remember hearing that for the first time and my heart was crushed, especially because I live in Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. which the homelessness rate is extremely high here. But I thought to myself, as a believer in Christ Jesus, there's a million of churches around me. And I'm like, am I a part of something that is so institutionalized that it doesn't do the hard work of seeing people because Mm -hmm. if we were doing the hard work of seeing people, that would not possibly be a statistic. There's just no possible way. And so I started thinking to myself, my own personal story, there's been moments in my life where I felt unseen and I felt invisible, not because I lived on the streets. I had a very opposite lifestyle, but I think for me, 11 years ago, remembering the days where I didn't want to live anymore and almost ended my own life because I felt invisible Mm -hmm. makes me realize that being seen is less, it's less about what someone's eyes do for you, but more about what someone's soul does. It's a soul connection there. And so we started thinking, what can we create that is unconventional and different and helps people feel seen, but also encourages others to do the hard work of seeing others as well. And it first started with this like I solar powered, like iPod type thing where we could put messages of hope. And then my brain naturally, you know, when people say like, oh, think outside of the box. For me, there is no box. And so <laughs> that does complicate things quite often because my, my team's yes. like, Gloria, what is going on? And so I told them about this phone booth idea. And I said, I think this is a unique way to see a generation, mm-hmm. the baby boomers who had these phone booths. And I remember seeing them yeah. all around our city, seeing them. And then they kind of disappeared right. like randomly out of the blue. No one talked about it, whatever. <laughs> um, but then we have this generation, Gen Z, who has no clue what a phone booth is. And yeah, so it's I'm just like, a novelty. It's a novelty. And I'm like, guys, this was like a real thing. And so I think being able to bridge the gap between a multitude of generations and bringing something familiar and unfamiliar at the same time together is a really unique thing. I think we're, we're with the Hope Booth in general, it's already such a unique and outlandish concept that the actual message within itself doesn't necessarily need to be that outlandish. Mm. And so 
Um, yeah, that's kind of when the idea happened or came to mind. It was around July, 2020. And I worked every week on it with one person on the team. I only told one person. And then it got to December when I started to realize, man, there's an urgent need for this thing. Like we were originally thinking 2025, 2026, because it sounds very futuristic. It does not mm. sound like a thing that should be in our right. 2022 <laughs> and definitely not in 2020 at the time. Yeah. And so we were thinking 2025 and then we started realizing, no, there's like an urgency. I think our mm-hmm. world needs hope. People need to be seen. People are dying because they are not being seen. Yeah. And so I told our team, uh, January, 2021. And they were just like, what? <laughs> They're like, what in the world? We don't have the money for this. And I was like, dang, you're right. I forgot money is a thing. Like I think sometimes as innovators, it's a small little thing. Yeah. We forget the fact that money really is a thing, but I am a firm believer that if it is an idea that is bigger than us, it does invite people into a story that's bigger mm-hmm. than us and makes mm-hmm. the impossible possible. Yep. And so January, we talked about it and we didn't work on it. We didn't do anything still thinking in 2025 because right. we don't have money. And then <laughs> July came around and we got this invitation to the world's largest art expo in London, England. And they're like, hey, we would love for you guys to come. And in my brain, I'm like, come and bring what? A spoken word piece? Like, what are we supposed to, what are we supposed to bring? And then it just dawned on me, the hope booth. This would be the perfect time to build the prototype, scale and gauge the impact yes. and see how people respond to this thing. And I was like, wait a so second. So they didn't specifically request the whole no, booth. They you even thought this is what we're bringing. Yes. This is the no time. one knew what it was other than our okay. team at the time. Okay. And so we rallied the troops and I said, guys, yeah. we're going to London in October. We don't have a booth. We don't know how to create a booth, who to contact, what to do, how to riot it, but let's do this thing. And I am blessed with a team of people who have enough faith and courage mm-hmm. to have said, yeah, I'm down. Yeah. And so we got to work and it was completed within three months. Somehow, I don't know how it was completed within three months. And I think the beautiful thing about it is we often say this on our team, that Hope Booth is built for the community by the community. Mm -hmm. And it took a team of people in about 15 different states, 30 different people. Some of the people I've never actually even met before coming together and saying, yeah, I want to be a part of this. And we spent $0 to make it happen. It was absolutely unreal. And so we got this thing. And I think that was just like, the beauty of it is I'm realizing people want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And so it was very easy to get people a part of it. And when I say easy, I don't necessarily mean easy as far as required no effort, but easy as in once we found the right people, their yes was very effortless. Yes. Um, And that was, that was the beauty that I've seen is the power of collaboration. What happens when we lay aside our personal agendas and we come together for a greater cause, what could happen in the lives that could be transformed because of it. Yeah. And it's been wild. It has been wild. One thing that as a songwriter is just so powerful to me is the fact that you landed on the concept of a phone booth. And the reason is you were talking about what it means to the different generations, you know, novelty versus something very familiar. But for everybody who's who knows what a phone booth is, whether it's in movies or in real life, it represents this 
place of safety, for one thing. If you ever used a phone booth, it was because you needed to contact someone. You needed, you had a quarter, you needed a ride, you needed to touch base with mom or something. So you went into this enclosed space. Um, I think yours is, they're not stepping into it, right? They're standing stepping up to, yeah. stepping up to it, but it still has um, a connotation of a safe space in the midst of a chaotic city, possibly. It also is all about connection. And I'm sure you've thought of all these things, but it's just so, I love it when the physical manifestation of something carries the message. It's every aspect of it. So it's a place of connection. Ultimately, you go in to make calls. It also, for the younger generations who have seen it in movies, it's a place where you go in and you're transformed into Superman, right? <laughs> you're transformed. <laughs> There's a place true. where people go in as one thing and come out as another thing. Share with us some of the powerful moments that you've witnessed. Yeah, absolutely. So, so with each experience, uh, we have four experiences in the prototype in general. Um, we kind of just, we pick which experiences we're going to use per each city based off how we feel um, the climate is per each city. Hmm. So it depends on where we are. Sometimes if we're at a university, we kind of, we've now learned which experiences are the right ones for university students. And so we pick based off of um, the climate and the culture and the demographic and where we are. And uh, within each experience, they all have a similarity yet all have a difference. Mm -hmm. And so the similarity is the fact that they all start kind of with a, um, kind of like a voiceover prompting. She has a very therapeutic voice and mm -hmm. she tells you to, for the next three minutes to be here, to mm -hmm. leave behind all of your worries, your anxieties, your doubt, because really we don't want the experience to begin until you've decided I'm going to be here. Like I'm mm -hmm. going to carve out these three minutes to simply be present. Uh, Cause I think a lot of times we have an issue with feeling seen because we're still stuck in the past and we're not stuck yeah. in the present moment. Right. And so um, kind of Teach. walks you through a moment of just laying aside a lot of um, your doubts and, and pressures and weights that you could bring to the experience with you if you're living a regular life. And so um, from there, uh, she tells you to take a deep breath. And it's really interesting because I can, no matter where I am, I, if I can get eye contact with the booth itself, I can see the person in the experience actually take the deep breath and you mm. see a weight lifted from people. And so many people after the experience talk about the fact that like, man, I don't realize that I don't even take deep breaths. Like mm -hmm. I forget to breathe. It was just an yep. amazing moment to have three minutes to just breathe and receive. And so after that portion of the experience, we have like a, I wouldn't say it's a spoken word, but it's more so a poetic message of hope. Um, and we kind of wanted to veer away from it being too spoken wordy because mm -hmm. we know there are people who don't understand spoken word. We know there are people who maybe are coming to the Hope Booth with a lot of different educational backgrounds. Some mm -hmm. people have no education at all. And so we didn't want to make something that was too difficult for some people to experience or understand because then that would be us not seeing them. Right. And so to make it inclusive, we wanted to create something that whether you are eight years old or 80 years old, you can understand it and, and feel seen and receive the message of hope for you. And so all four experiences have a different artistic message of hope. And then post, uh, it's about a minute or so, post that moment, um, each one has a different affirmation that the voiceover would tell mm. you to say. 
And what I love about this segment is I think it's actually most people's favorite moment of the experience because uh, I think of the four, it's we have I matter, I am enough, I am who I'm meant to be. And I can't remember what the fourth mm. one is at the moment. So many people talk about the fact that they hesitated when the voiceover told them to say that because they realized that's not something that they've believed about themselves for so long. They hesitated to speak what's true because they didn't realize that was true. And so it's really amazing that post an experience, um, sure, all of this is really great and impactful and hopeful, but there's one thing I want you to hold on to. And it's that affirmation. You can Mm. walk away the remainder of the day, maybe not remembering everything about the experience, but you can remember, I am who I'm meant to be. Mm. And if you can remember that intrinsically, then that, that naturally is going to come out in a way where you are seeing others because you're believing the truth about yourself that you are seen and you are enough, you are who you're meant to be and you matter. And so, um, after that, each one has like a different quote just for someone to be encouraged and find hope in another unique way. And then that's the end of the three minute experience. And so it's really cool because everyone has, though the same response, such different perspective. Um, And we did on the tour, something called post uh, experience uh, interviews. And so we had one of our artists kind of interview people after the experience. And man, if you have an Instagram, I would love for you to go check it out and go look at just some of the recaps from every city that we went to, but to see the amount of people in tears because they felt so encouraged to see the amount of people say, you know what, when I said that affirmation, I realized I could, I can sit up straight. Like Mm -hmm. I could put my shoulders back and I can say I am who I'm meant to be. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even realize that before. So to see the courage placed in some people to see the confidence placed in some people, to see the hope placed in some people was just absolutely amazing and just so encouraging, honestly. Mm. The thing about affirmations that I've encountered is that we can be so uncomfortable saying them for the first time, saying anything kind about ourselves, you know, to some, for many people. Um, And part of that is, as you said, we don't, fully believe it. And part of that is we have felt forbidden to believe those things. Many, many people feel like that just sounds self-absorbed to say, or who am I to say I'm living, I'm the living the life I meant to, or how did you say, what was it exactly? I, I am, am who I'm meant to be. I am who I am meant to be. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I it, think there's something about There's something about affirmations that can sometimes feel very superficial. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's because of the fact that a lot of us maybe grew up not hearing these things that Mm -hmm. is normal for every human being to hear. Like, I think there has been this disconnect and this gap in our psyche naturally to believe that we have to put ourselves down or downplay a lot of the good things that happen in our lives because people have it worse. And I'm like, well, I don't think we necessarily need to compare suffering in essence. I think the fact that we are breathing is worthy of celebrating. Like that is a big, big deal. And I think affirmations become easier when you begin to realize my life is worth celebrating. Mm -hmm. And you begin to speak these truths into yourself because you realize when I walk out into quote unquote, the real world, it is harsh. It is chaotic. It is, it is messy. And if I am not grounded in the truth of who I am, then when I go out there, I will be shaken. Like when yes. I go out there, 
the lies, I will believe them when people speak them against me. When yes. I go out there, I will receive people's projection as some form of uh, rejection upon me. And so I think it's so important that we are internally stabilized so that when we do go out into the chaotic world, we're fine. Nothing can really jolt us too much, so much so that we lose our identity. And as you said, you are then able to give the gift of sight, of seeing others, mm-hmm. and really being present in a way that's very difficult if you are so preoccupied with your sense of inadequacy. Because then we bring that to each other and say, fill me up, fill me up, fill me up. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and yeah, I think for me, affirmations um, were an early step in my journey of just waking me. The fact that it feels awkward was a wake up call to do and sent me to the deeper work to transform the Absolutely. I absolutely love this so much. I would love for you to, I know some of your backstory and I know about your opportunity with the FBI and your choice to go a different direction. And that brought you into this amazing work. Yes. Um, but can you share a little bit more? Because I think it's a really powerful story, how you made the choice that you made. Yeah. So honestly, that was, that was a chaotic time of life. <laughs> like, um, I don't even remember how long ago it was at this point, but I was um, studying in college. I was a triple major studying computer science, criminal justice, and psych. And I wanted to work for the FBI, but in order to do that, I need to really, I need to know like Mandarin really well Uh or Arabic really well fluently, or I need to go to law school. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to learn a whole new language. So (laughs) we're going to go the route of law school. And my chances of getting into some of the places I wanted to go to are higher if I don't just study Mm pre-law. And so um, I ended up having the opportunity to intern with the FBI for two summers. And that was really incredible experience. And I knew that this is where I wanted to end up, but I knew that the path to get there was going to be a little trickier. And Mm -hmm. uh, um, I remember being at this point in my life where I was also kind of dabbling in spoken word. I became our school's like spoken word artist. And so we would travel every weekend and I would get to do spoken word at different churches and conferences and camps and all these unique places. But there was, there was like a small, like part of me that felt like this is just a hobby. Don't get Mm. it confused. Like this is not (laughs) going to be the main thing because you will be poor if it is. And so I was like, you're right. You're right. You're right. Keep the main thing, the main thing. We're going to law school. And because you will be poor. um, But there was this tension where I knew like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm. Like it's, it's not, it's not law school, but you know, I love delusions. And so I was like, okay, let me just, let me just live in this delusion anyway for the time being. I mean, my senior year, it's too late to change anything. Mm-hmm. And I remember at this point, I was in a photography class. So my senior year, I was just, I studied like plumbing. I was done with school for the most part. So I really just stayed an additional year, my senior year, so that I could continue as a spoken word artist on the collective that oh, I was wow. on that was paying for my schools. I was done with school. I was in plumbing classes, ten- tennis classes, photography classes, life classes is what I call them. <laughs> and in my photography class, my professor says, I want you guys to pick a photographer from this list of photographers and write about them. And I was like, okay, that's easy. And so I look at the list and I just picked the coolest name. And the name was Jasmine Starr. I was like, that sounds kind of cool. 
So I go to the girl's bio on her website and I kid you not, it had two sentences. I said, what kind of bio is this? Um, but I read it and the bio, I, I probably will butcher it right now and not get it word for word, but she ultimately said, I've lived a life of safety and security, which led me to law school, locked my creativity in a box and stifled my soul. Whoa. And I read that. I said that, first of all, who let you write that bio? <laughs> Second of all, God, why are you trying to speak to me so clearly? Right. Right. Now? right. And if that's not that, a sign. I was like, oh man, I'm only picking this route because of safety and security. Mm. My creativity is being locked in a box because right now it wants to unleash out, but I'm kind of taming it because I know yeah. this is, this is not plan a. So mm -hmm. don't get too comfortable right. with this thing. And then, uh, thirdly, it's stifling my soul because of that tension that I'm experiencing right there. And I said, well, what in the world? Like this was, when I tell you this was troubling for me, this was troubling <laughs> for me because I now knew I needed to make a difference um, or a change in my, um, in my path, but I didn't know exactly what that looked like. So I was like, okay, do I just apply to work? work at a church? Like, I don't know. Like, I, I'm not sure how this becomes a thing. And so when I tell you, I applied to work at every church in America, <laughs> like in every role, even it wasn't even like I was looking for a specific role. I applied to be maintenance. I applied to be a priest at a Catholic. <laughs> I applied to be anything, anywhere in the United States of America. And when I tell you not a single church messaged me back, emailed me back, nothing. And I was like, Oof, we are a couple months to graduation and I'm a type A person that always has a plan. What is going on? And it was almost like, I, I don't, I don't even know how to make sense of this to this day, other than it could have only been God for me. It was my senior year, few weeks before graduation, we are in something called convocation. So this is where mm -hmm. our school gathers a ton of people. They invite guest speakers, all that jazz. And we're in it. And I get a text from a guy that's leading an organization. And he says, Hey, I'm putting on this, this camp for students. Um, it's a 10 day thing. I'd love for you to come and do spoken word every single day of the 10 days. And here's how much we can pay you. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> and then I got another text from another guy across the country doing very similar saying the same thing. And within it was very strange. I don't know what happened, but within the hour of our convocation time, I got about six or seven text messages what? for six or seven camps happening across the country. And then in the two week span from that moment up until graduation, I ended up booking the remainder of 2017 and all of 2018 to travel and do spoken word and speaking literally across the country and then globally on top of that. It was, it was when I tell you the wildest thing in the world, it was the wildest thing in the world, but that's when I knew without a doubt that this was what I was supposed to be doing one, because the doors were opening, but also two, I think it was an act of faith to, oh, I missed a very important part of the story. So after I had read Jasmine Starr's bio, mm -hmm. I actually got offered what my dream job was with the FBI without having to go to law school. And I remember in that moment thinking to myself, what kind of sick joke is this that <laughs> you would reveal to me and show me that this is not the direction of the route I need to go. But then it's almost like you're dangling this carrot in front of my face of like, 
here's the things you wanted, come yeah. and get it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what in the world am I supposed to do? Like, it was such a difficult time because that's when I had to learn the voice of God for myself mm. and learn it clearly. And that's when I had to realize also, like, I think a lot of times our, our why is so important and the why of wanting to go the direction of law and government and FBI was rooted in fear. It wasn't rooted in desire. It wasn't rooted in calling. It wasn't rooted mm-hmm. in destiny. And um, I think that's why I am so glad to this day that I didn't choose that route based yeah. off of fear because fear-based decisions always crumble. That's just naturally what always happens. And so, yeah. And then yeah, 2018 came and that's when the thought to start the Ex Nihilo Collective, which is that spoken word collective that I started began. And God has just done wild. And when I say unrealistic, truly unrealistic things like that has just been amazing and crazy all at the same time. So it's been a really amazing journey of just having my hands open, ready to receive whatever it is that's coming my way. That is such an incredible story with so many, so much gold hidden throughout it. And I think especially the learning, the part about learning to discern the voice of God, the voice of truth, the voice mm-hmm. of love and over fear. And what would you say to, you know, I'm sure there are many people listening who want to say, well, that's great, but God doesn't show up for me that way. I don't have big signs. Things don't fall into my lap. People don't text me. Nobody invites me to anything. How do I, how do you hear the voice of God, the voice of truth, the voice of love when it's feeling very murky, very quiet, very lonely? Yeah, that's a great question. I think everyone experiences the voice of God differently. Mm. So I think that's something to celebrate. Um, Cause I think for so long I thought, man, well, I don't experience it how this person does. And so I thought I didn't know the voice of God mm. at all because I didn't experience it the way that friend does. Yeah. And I think once we rid ourselves of this mental striving um, and this like comparison mindset, that's when we begin to open our hands to receive, okay, how do you want to speak to me? Is it through nature? Because for some people it is, is it through grocery shopping and the people that I encounter when I'm there? Is it through music? Is it through writing? I think it is this beautiful journey of learning. How do I experience and know his voice? And so maybe that for someone who feels like they don't know it yet, maybe that means trying a lot of different things um, until you feel like, oh, this is, this is it. Cause I, you're going to get to that spot where you're like, this is it. Like for me, it's going on walks in mm. nature. I don't yeah, like to walk too. outside with headphones on because yeah. I feel like I'm silencing a voice that's trying to speak to me yeah. and God speaks so clearly to me when I'm out in nature. Um, and so I think it's this, if you see it as a wonderful adventure of finding his voice mm-hmm. instead of, um, I guess maybe getting upset and frustrated that you're not finding his voice, then I think you begin to open the doors to find his voice sooner than later. Mm. Um, And then when you do find it, it's going to be a beautiful moment that you're never going to forget um, and you're going to cherish forever. Yeah. And that sense of alignment uh, for me is a confirmation. And it's not that 
it's it's not driven by fear, even if there are scary steps to take. Yeah. Like yeah. you were saying about the effort, it's not that there was no work or effort involved, but it wasn't a striving along the way. You weren't having to force people to participate in your hope journey. Um, so I think that's beautiful. What is essential to your sense of aliveness? Yeah, for me, I think <clears throat> what was essential for me in the moment when I was trying to determine um, if my life is worth living was trying to recognize the difference between my existence being acknowledged and my existence being appreciated. Mm. I think those are two very, very vastly different things. I think that in essence is what it means to be seen. Um, and I, I, I learned that very quickly, but I think those are the moments where I feel most alive is when my presence is not just merely acknowledged. That's the bare minimum. That's, mm. that's the bare minimum we can do for yeah. humanity, for each other, for ourselves. But when our existence comes to a point where it is appreciated, then we know it is valued and it matters. And when you feel, I mean, I think, you think about like a child, any child that knows that like they, where they are, how they are as wild and crazy as they are, because I do believe kids know that they're crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> when they feel that they are appreciated and accepted and loved in their craziest form. Um, I think that's when they feel like I can, I have permission to be me. I have permission to take up the space that's necessary. I have permission to be alive. And I think, Mm. although we don't need people's permission to be alive, I think there's this intrinsic, um, desire within our soul to uh, be seen. And in that in that desire to be seen is oftentimes this opportunity for people to give us permission to be alive. Because I think we just naturally all have been through so much in life where we just constantly are in this state of a lot of doubt. We're constantly Mm -hmm. in this state of um, anxiety and constantly in this state of second second guessing our worth and our value. And so Mm -hmm. that's why words matter. That's why how we speak to people matters. That's why um, seeing others matters. Cause we don't really know what each person's going through. Like we don't right. know the moment that they just walked out of, and we don't know that the moment that they're about to walk into. And so I would say in essence is knowing that you're not just, um, your, your presence is not just acknowledged, but it's appreciated. Hmm. Yes. What do you love most about being you in the world about being Gloria? That's a great question. I don't know. I feel like I thought about that one day and then I was mm-hmm. like, that's conceited. But then I'm like, is it? Um, I think what I love most about being Gloria or most about me is um, I am very observant, like very, very observant. And so it gives me, I think, eyes to see what most people don't see which I think that's what helped me create the hope booth is because I see a problem because I've spent enough time observing. I've spent enough time looking around and enough time listening. And because of that, I think just so many of the people that are really close to me in my life, 
they all notice like, oh, Gloria, you asked me questions that like nobody else really asked me. And I think it's because I've spent enough time observing you and I want to know a lot about you and every detail about you so that I can better love you and better serve mm. you. And so I think my favorite part about being me is how observant I am. It's honestly, I'm almost too observant sometimes um, where, so for example, I have a neighbor and by neighbor, he's not even in the same building as me. He's in the okay. building like adjacent to me. But when I lay in my bed at night and I'm like watching a movie or something, I can look across and in this entire building, there is nobody with their blinds open except one person. Okay. And there's a TV on every single night. And I, I started to notice every night the TV's off around the same time. Hmm. And so I'm like, huh, between 1115 and 1125, he turns his TV off. I, I sometimes Just miss say. the moment when, but it happens every single night. And so I'm like, man, I'm like freakishly observant now for the fact that I've noticed that I'm yeah. like, this is, this is a lot Gloria, but <laughs> I, I just, I see things. Um, but really I think I see things because I really care. I care yeah. deeply about a lot of things and everything. What most people would probably just brush off. I really care about. And I think that is where the heart of a pioneer has come in inside mm-hmm. of me. Um, I can only take steps into uncharted territories if I'm seeing something that other people haven't seen yet. And so I think that I would say that's my favorite, favorite thing about being Gloria. You're a seer Mm -hmm. and seeing is loving. And that's why the hope booth is in perfect alignment with your life in your heart. I love that. And I want to know when you solve the mystery of what happens between 1115 and 1125. (laughs) So really funny. I, I posted on my TikTok like maybe two days ago. I said, it was like 11, it was like 1118, I think, or 1119. And I said, my neighbor, I, every night I, it's not that I'm watching him. It's the fact that I look outside and I live in the middle of a city in a high rise. I look outside and there was one TV just blaring at me. (laughs) And and I'm like, man, I noticed that he usually turns it off around the same timing every day. And in the middle of me recording, he turns it off. And I said, see, I, this is just like clockwork at this point. And really I was celebrating his discipline because I'm like, (laughs) I don't actually know if it's a he or she, I can't really tell. I just see the TV, but I'm right. like, that's a lot of discipline to be able to turn off the TV at the same time or around the same time every day. Meanwhile, I'm like still up. And I'm like, this is, this guy's my indicator on if I'm yeah. up too late or not. If I look out that window and that TV's not on, I probably should go to bed. And I remember posting that on my TikTok and it's like blowing up right now. People are like, really? <laughs> yes. yes, I will. This up. person has no idea that they are. They have, they have or maybe they do, them. I don't know. But I'd, I've never seen them before. No one goes out on their balcony and I'm like, what do these people do? Like, but yeah, it's like blowing up and people are like, this is so crazy. <laughs> what in the world? It's amazing. Now to be clear, when he, when the, the, it goes off, it stays off. Or it comes back on after 10 minutes. Okay, it's it's done. It's done. The night is over. TV goes off and then lights go black. And I'm like, wow, Wow. he's he's done for the night. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Random, but amazing. (laughs) I love it. Hey, thank you so much, Gloria. It was um, a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I know it's going to be such a gift and such an inspiration to everyone, but it was also a gift and a pleasure for me personally to Thank talk you. with you again. It's been a really great conversation too. I loved this and love getting to chat with you. And to our listeners, thanks so much for being with us. I encourage you to adventure with Gloria by following her, Gloria Umana, 
and also the Hope Booth accounts on Instagram. You can find me at Krista Wells Music, and thank you in advance for leaving a kind review and rating wherever you stream the podcast. Until next time. Stop my heartbeat like the western shore.